This is a Washington Post Live podcast from the Global Women's Summit with presenting sponsors AARP, Boston Consulting Group, and Volvo. You're listening to conversations from Washington Post Live's 2022 Global Women's Summit, featuring leaders and trailblazers from around the world. Sev Gill. So President Zelensky said yesterday that the capture of Kherson is the beginning of the end of the war. So you're the editor of Ukraine's most influential daily news site. From your reporters on the ground, from your information, how do you see that? Do you think he's right? Uh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your support. uh, Because without it, all our victories will be not possible. And we feel it. And uh, today, Olena Zelenska said it. And I can just... I say that it, it, it's absolutely true. Without your support, without weapons, without everything that people provide us, it will be not possible. Uh, yeah, you know, after the liberation of Kherson, um, personally, me, I'm from Crimea. I dream about uh, that next time I'll, I will receive some news about liberation of Simferopol or my native Kerch. And we do believe in that. We believe that we will win this war in that. But sitting even now on the stage, um, I'm reading the news that right now Russia hit residential building, buildings in Ukraine. Hit, hit already three residential buildings right now. It's happening right now. Of course, this victory will be difficult. This victory will be not very soon, but we believe that uh, we have this struggle, we have this passion, and we actually don't have a chance to lose this war because this is worse. This is war to the right of our country to exist. To survive. To survive. Yes, to survive. So when you took over this job in in 2014, two of your predecessors had been killed in the line of duty. I mean, the Mm co-founder was found beheaded. Mm -hmm. A reporter was killed in a car bombing. I mean, you actually worked before as a a business reporter. I'm just you know, frankly, in awe of, of why you took this leap into danger to edit this, this news site at a time of such conflict. Yes, uh, the co-founder of Ukrainska Pravda, Georgi Gangadze, was killed in 2000, and I was just 13 years old. I grew up in the southernmost uh, region of Ukraine, Crimea, and this story is each in my heart, that the truth is a weapon, because, um, you know, this story... Was a huge, it was a huge impact of this story in Ukraine and just for freedom of speech in our country and um, in trust for the journalists. And it led to accusations uh, to the government and to the protest ended with the revolution, first revolution, orange revolution. And I was already 17 years old and I took part in this revolution because it was struggle of Ukrainian people for freedom, democracy, and Ukrainska Pravda played an important role uh, just to move forward uh, freedom of press as an essential value of our country. I know, but you're so young and it must be so frightening, frankly. You know, after Crimea was occupied, my heart was so broken, I understood that I can't um, follow business news anymore. It's not about that. I, have to, I need to help my country and uh, people in Crimea as well. And I understood that maybe Ukrainska Pravda will be also the way how I can do that. Yeah. Well, Janine, you and I have known each other a long time. You're a, you know, you're a, you are a very celebrated war reporter in, in many theatres uh, of war. Um, 
But now you're an activist, actually, you know, training to collect war crimes evidence in the midst of this conflict. So what compelled you to turn away from the telling of stories to sort of documenting evidence? That's a different role. Yes, <coughs> it is. Um, first of all, thank you, everyone, for coming out this morning. Thank you, Tina and Sally and Sevgil and Heidi. Such an honor to be with such amazing women. And being with people like you gives me energy and gives me strength to keep doing this kind of work. So the Reckoning Project was founded on February 25th, the day after the invasion. And it basically was born out of my extreme sorrow and bitterness at having witnessed three genocides in my life, Srebrenica, Rwanda, and the slaughter of the Yazidi people. I didn't want to see a fourth. And more than that, I've spent basically more than 35 years as a war reporter, but mainly focused on human rights and on war crimes. And I have seen too many bad guys get away with it and never get anywhere near The Hague, let alone get indicted or even, even outed in their own countries. And I've sat with too many women that have been raped or violated. I, I always think of women in Bosnia that were held in rape camps, 20,000 women, some of them raped up to 16 times a day just to get them pregnant so that their gene pool would be broken. And some of them have to still face their rapists every day in the villages where they live because these guys never even got on any kind of indictment list for The Hague. So the Reckoning Project, um, Peter Pomerantsev, my partner, who's a, an expert in Russian disinformation, and Natalia Gumenyuk, who is a famous um, Ukrainian journalist, the three of us decided that we weren't going to wait for the ICC or for investigators to start working. We decided to start working immediately on the ground, documenting the atrocities in real time, so that by the time the courts are ready for these cases, we will have all of the evidence. And we can say, we're watching, we see you, and you're not going to get away with it, not this time. So in many ways, I couldn't have done this job when I started out because I needed the kind of 35 years of experience of working in war zones. Heidi and I met during the first intifada in Israel. Um, I've you know, been, the kind of gathering of the experience that I have from being on the ground has led me to be able to take a team of 15 Ukrainian journalists, train them to be human rights monitors, basically. And we have templates. We're in the field throughout the country of Ukraine. And we interview witnesses. Then we verify it using many different sources. And then we build cases. So we so work with... So how do you recruit these people? I mean, are they reporters that you know? Are they people that you sort of find and train? And, and how do you do that in the yeah. middle of the bloodshed? It's been so interesting. Um, so Natalia, who runs a journalism lab in Ukraine, recruited 15 local reporters. And so this is the really interesting thing. Um, I have huge respect for Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and other groups, but they, they're foreigners that go in and out. And our team are Ukrainians. So it empowers them to be reporting on their own country uh, or documenting the atrocities. They're local journalists, um, and so they know they're from the village. Everyone knows them. Everyone trusts them. So they're able 
to um, basically record these atrocities and people trust them. Um, how we train them, we use very rigorous methods giving them, we're having another training next week. Um, every six months we bring them in uh, from all over Ukraine to Kyiv. This time actually we're going outside of Kyiv because of the electricity situation. Um, and we give them training in interviewing techniques in, um, for instance, I never knew this in all my years of being a reporter, you cannot interview traumatized people and have it stand up in court. Um, there may be some of you who are lawyers here and you did know this. You cannot go to a traumatized person, get evidence from them, a prosecutor will throw it out. So they have to relearn and not think like journalists, but think like lawyers. And they're, um, they're, they're trained in international humanitarian law. Uh, I, we try to do a lot of trauma training with them because of course they are living in the midst of it for 24 seven. Mm. Um, so I'm really proud of my team, but it's, I'm the director and I'm guiding them and I'm leading them and they look to me <laughs> kind of like a mother because I've been through so many wars. So, so I will tell them, we lived through the siege of Sarajevo. It was three years. There was no water, there was no electricity and we survived and you, you can too, you will get through this. But they're a remarkable group of people. And I just have one more thing to say, most of them are women mm -hmm. um, because our, we had men who were mobilized to the front. So we're a group of very strong Ukrainian women and two Syrians who also know very well what injustice means. Mm -hmm. Thank you, that's extraordinary work. I mean, so Heidi, obviously as uh, a great photojournalist, your challenge is to get very close, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the action. I mean, it's, it's very dangerous. And if you don't get that image, there's nothing, right? So you, you have to get as close as you can. So how does photographing this war in Ukraine uh, compare to the other conflicts? I mean, you've covered wars in Syria and mm -hmm. Lebanon, for instance. What are the particular sort of challenges you've been facing in doing the remarkable photographs that you have from Ukraine? Um, well, thank you. First of all, I would like to thank everyone for having me and um, all the people I have met over the since the beginning of the war that have let me into their lives to try to tell their story. Um, um, I've had incredible support. Um, covering the war in, in Ukraine has been um, very challenging. It's very dangerous. Um, there are lots of um, journalists who have been killed. Um, wearing a press badge um, does not um, make you safer, in fact. Um, Many journalists are targeted. We stopped actually even putting media signs on our cars um, because we were targeted. Um, in this war, I, I would say it's one of the, f it is the first war that I have seen a whole society um, come together to work together to fight, to win, the, to, to win hopefully win this war. Um, there's no doubt in anyone's mind in Ukraine that they will win this war. I have seen um, uh, elderly women um, and uh, young uh, kids um, working together to cook food um, for the troops, uh, to provide for the people that are staying in shelter. I have seen, uh, I've met 
uh, volunteers who are risking their lives, um, coming under fire to um, take elderly uh, uh, people out of their homes to evacuate them. Uh, they're particularly very vulnerable. Um, I'd like to actually call up some of these pictures, if we may, because sure. some of the ones that you, we have here to show bear out what you're saying. You've done particularly moving work, I feel, on the elderly, actually, who frequently get forgotten in, in these situations. And in, the, in this image, I, I took in eastern Ukraine in Pokrovsk, which is um, a hub, uh, an evacuation hub. And I was with the uh, Washington Post team and uh, Siobhan O'Grady, and... Um, we met actually um, these women, these three women um, that were in the back of a van. There are also other patients. Um, so basically, let me just uh, go backwards. What happens every day, there's an evacuation train um, that leaves at uh, 4.30 in the afternoon. But by 3 o'clock, the volunteers that have risked their lives to evacuate people take, um, gather at the train station um, it, we, it took about an hour um, before um, these women were actually uh, carried in the blankets and boarded onto the train. These three women are all wearing red bracelets. They had been, um, and, and most of the time, were holding onto um, each other. Um, one of the women allowed, actually... Um, Sleg was amputated uh, from diabetes. Um, some of the women couldn't speak. Um, one of uh, the women actually had a note with her phone number. Um, they did not know where they were going, yeah, um, and, and which is really heartbreaking. So um, it, it really, really is. Let's just run through these images. In now. the next image. We'll go to the next image, yeah. This is um, taken uh, in the beginning of March, just a few weeks into the war, and um, thousands of people were crossing the Airpin Bridge, which was just partly destroyed. You could, nobody could drive over it. Um, this woman, an elderly woman, was covered in snow. It was freezing. Uh, she's being transported in a shopping cart. Um, and we, within those two days, we interviewed over 20 people, um, conducted 20 interviews, and people told us that they were um, outside their homes. There were uh, landmines. The Russians had controlled 20 to 30 percent of the city at the time. When I did get into Airpin and cross the bridge, I saw dead elderly people, other people who had been killed, uh, laying on the street, laying in parks. We met people um, that were taking shelter in the basement. They didn't have any food or electricity. Um, on top of the bridge, I saw a man that had been killed. Um, so Let's go to the next one here and just try to get through these amazing images. So this is also an elderly man. I, um, being carried um, by volunteers. Uh, and I have to say, um, this was so heartbreaking that I was actually having nightmares after visiting um, 
uh, in documenting. I, it was so shocking to see people carrying whatever like they could only carry. You had elderly crossing, you had women and children and um, disabled on crutches in wheelchairs. Uh, at times there were missile strikes that actually killed a whole family not very far away from this location. Um, and it, it, it's just like so, so unbelievable that this is happening in 2022. Mm -hmm. Okay, next picture. Oh, I think this picture is one of my, this is the most moving. I mean, the fact that those red roses on the bed, you know, mm -hmm. pick up the color on her, on her sweater is something so beautiful and tragic about this picture. Well, um, her name is Adea, and I photographed um, her in uh, Slovyansk in eastern Ukraine. And it was just hours after um, the Russians had targeted uh, her residential neighborhood. The rockets explode right outside on the street, leaving a huge crater. Um, she is standing next to a pool of blood of, um, from a soldier. Um, several soldiers had rented the, the room of her apartment a few days earlier because they were on leave from the front line. And she heard them screaming and witnessed them trying to save the life of uh, one of the soldiers. Three other women uh, were killed in that building. In fact, uh, in one of the apartments, um, there was a woman, elderly woman, who had been just blown up, blown to pieces in her bedroom. Um, this is an apartment complex of uh, 150 units. Uh, we went back and did a, um, a very uh, in-depth story um, about the people living in this building, and there were only nine people still living there. It's incredibly powerful. Sefgil, when you look at these images, I mean, you have all these reporters out on the ground reporting on this horror. Uh, how do you sort of administer the, to these people? Because, I mean, they are witnessing such uh, painful stuff that, I mean, they must get traumatized themselves. Is it for you a hugely um, demanding sort of management job to essentially sort of run these reporters who are experiencing of course, so much pain? Of course, when I saw these pictures, for example, this um, bridge, Inner pain. I have my personal story connected to this bridge because Inner Pain was my classmate of at Carbot Neiman Fellowship, uh, Brent Renault, who is a brilliant documentarian. He was killed near this bridge, and he came to Ukraine uh, to film a documentary about Ukrainian refugees. So it's also like a personal story, and you reflect in your personal way. And of course, it's traumatized because it's not only about uh, it's covering war in your own country. It's about your relatives. It's about your countrymen. And um, you know, when I went to these villages, um, just after Ukrainian army came to these villages, and I spoke to the people, they usually use their even own language. And it's so simple, and at the same time so heartbreaking. So it's just like the grief in the formaldehyde. Mm -hmm. And um, you can cry even. You, yeah. you cried after, uh, after you, you listened to these recordings you took in those places. And you know, um, the most interesting thing that um, 
I'm thinking about the role of journalism. Of course, it's also, it's not only about covering, it's about empathy. And during the war, uh, it's, it is so important. Because when I went, for example, one of the villages, um, 30 kilometers away from, Ukrainian, from Russian-Ukrainian border, and spoke to the woman, and she told me that the most hardest thing was not even be without food, without water, she cried when she understood that I'm a journalist. She said that the hardest thing was be out of news. Mm. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. You can understand everything. And I remember how I received a call from my friend in Mariupol. Mariupol was already occupied. It was the end of February. And he asked me only one question. So there was no connection, internet connection. And he asked only one question. I know that Kiev is already surrounded, and I was trying to explain, no, it's not, a, it's not truth. How did you know that? It's not a truth. It's not, it's not like that. I was trying to explain it, but he didn't believe yeah. me. And um, yeah, and you think about the role of journalism, because it's literally when, when before I heard that information saves lives, it was just, okay, maybe yeah. it's not so kind of, but... Yeah, you're now really I understand. You're, you are an essential pillar of their ability to cope because you're giving them the information. But you know, you're you're busy kind of in the thick of running these reporters and and, and your staff and having helping them to to be strong. Who how, who keeps you strong? I mean, you know, you are a woman. You know, you're 35. You're uh, you know who who keeps you strong because it must be very very stressful for you personally. Of course, my family and my partner is here also. Oh. Nick, he came with me uh, this trip. And uh, uh, during this war, we had this personal story because he helped Brandt and his uh, team. And he was also the part of the story during this European bridge. And uh, it is hard. And yeah. I, when it happened, I can reach him for two hours. I didn't know if he is alive or not. Mm-hmm. It was heartbreaking. And of course my team, and uh, I'm so proud of my team and my people. And you know, I feel guilty things now because now they, in this moment, they cover war and they cover uh, missile attack right now, what is happening. Mm-hmm. And I saw like my phone blooming with all this breaking news uh, every second. Uh, and I feel guilty about yeah, that. Great. I'm sitting here in DC and my, my team in Kiev. Janine, what is your hardest, uh, thing to deal with in, in this work because, I mean, you are having to also uh, keep this team motivated while also experiencing hideous sights and sounds and, and, and stories. How does it impact on you? It, it doesn't get easier. The interesting thing is I thought after all these years, I, I've seen so much. I've seen so, you know, so much murder, so many mass graves. I've interviewed so many mothers whose children were murdered in front of them. And I thought by this stage in my life, I'd be able to take it more. Yeah. But as Heidi said, I, I still have nightmares. I still am gripped by anger, bitterness, but ma- mainly sorrow. Um, this is my third Putin war. And I was in Grozny, Chechnya, when it fell to Russian forces in January 2000. I really, that was, that was the moment I thought I'd die. You know, I couldn't, I was one of the only Westerners in the whole country and the Russians were closing in and with tanks and I couldn't get out. And I thought, okay, this is it. You know, I'm going to die. But 
at least I'm going to die believing in something and something that I have done something. I actually managed to file my story to the Times <laughs> of London. Um, it just said Grozny falls to Russian forces. And then my satellite phone died. But I got my story out. Um, and my second Putin war was Syria, where I spent eight years. And when Aleppo fell in December 2016, I cried and I cried because I felt like I personally had failed. And I know that sounds egotistical, but I felt that journalism, part of our job, the most noble part of it, is, is not just to bear witness, which is, of course, hugely important, but to make a difference and to somehow affect policy. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine's my third Putin war, and I really feel like we're doing it now. You know, I feel like this, the world is galvanized. In some ways, I'm very sad that we're not looking at Yemen and Afghanistan and Iran and other places. We will be today. But that um, there is so much focus on Ukraine, and there should be, because the Ukrainians are fighting for us, for democracy, basically. They're doing the heavy lifting against Putin, who is a disruptor of all democracy. Um, but how do I protect myself? Um, I think writing and I think the knowledge that somehow we are giving a voice to people that would not have a voice really matters to me. And you know, it's written in the Torah that if you save one life, you save humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I often, in my darkest moments, and believe me, I have many, when I really feel like I just can't go on anymore, I just can't keep doing this, I think of that. Mm -hmm. Heidi, just to, before we close, I just wanted to ask you, like, do you ever think about stopping? You know, I mean, you've done so much work over so many years, and I mean, do you sometimes feel? No, I, yeah. I, I guess I'm guilty of having a, a, an addiction for wanting to make a difference. And actually, the more I do this, the more committed um, I feel to, to do that. And I have seen that my images, you know, with baby steps, have helped to make a difference. People have reached out to me asking, um, how can they help? How can they donate? Um, I met a, um, we did a story about a woman uh, who had uh, walked the streets of Kiev for days looking for insulin for her son. Um, an NGO in France saw the story, wrote to me on Instagram, asked for the contact number. In the beginning, the woman didn't want to leave. But then a few months later, they sent me a photograph in the child and mother in France. That's incredibly gratifying for you. You know, several last word to you. Uh, what, what, is, what can everyone else in this room mm -hmm. say to you in terms of sustaining you in your work? Um, you know, I was thinking about the role of democracy and uh, uh, Janine mentioned it before. And you know, in like free societies, democracy, freedom, press, uh, independent press is taken for granted, like bread, water. And uh, it is normal, like just, but um, I saw it like it was before to March 2022 when I saw pictures from bomb out Mariupol. And then when I saw people who were trying to bake the bread in the ruins of their homes, and uh, we're trying to melt snow to have at least like some drinking water. And it's about the price of democracy during this, those time, uh, this time, and those challenging times. And 
we keep fighting, so in no way we don't, we, don't, we don't have a chance to lose this war. I mentioned it before and I will repeat it more often and uh, that's why of course we are exhausted, of course we are tired, of course we are traumatized, but he, we have a big hope. Well, that's incredibly brave and uh, I really want to thank you all. Um, for each of you. Each of your work, each of these women is doing the most remarkable and indispensable work, and we thank you all so much for doing so. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. You can find more conversations from our Global Women's Summit by searching Washington Post Live wherever you listen. Visit WashingtonPostLive.com to register for upcoming programs.